congratulations to the Red Roses for another resounding win over Wales at the weekend. We will turn our attention back to the Women's Six Nations in a few weeks, but today, the Rugby Paper podcast welcomes former England captain Phil de Glanville and former British and Irish Lion Tony Underwood to discuss the taboo that is retirement. Brendan, welcome back. Two-week hiatus. How are you? Very well, thanks. And we are joined by Tony Underwood and Phil de Glanville. Tony, how are you doing? I'm very, very well. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Phil, obviously one week later from the Varsity match, we were just speaking about it. I guess you've reveled in the celebrations a little bit. We, we, we did enjoy the game. It was a, it was a cracking contest uh, yeah. in spite of the red card. Now, uh, we are here to talk about your respective careers post-rugby. Phil, I'm going to come to you first. And first of all, for those who don't know listening, just tell us what you've been up to and what you've actually got into. Well, well, as as I finished rugby quite a long time ago, it's quite a long story. So you know, <laughs> okay. so give us give us the curtailed version. Yeah, but, but, but I suppose, I suppose the, the 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 important thing is that you know we we, we were we were amateur, so we all had day jobs before rugby went professional. So I kind of managed to kind of keep a little toehold in that um, whilst rugby was professional. I was a professional for for six years and. So I never lost track, if you like, with the outside world, <laughs> outside rugby. So, you know, I've done such a, an, an atypical career. Everyone talks about, you know, you know what you want to do afterwards. Well, I didn't. Um, and I've done four different things. Uh, I, I've worked in IT consultancy. I, I worked for Sport England. Uh, I've worked as a director of sport for, uh, for Hartbury College. And now I'm, I'm headhunting um, and, and run my own business in, in the headhunting world. So, I think the, the the message is you know transferable skills you can you can apply them to pretty much everything you want but um, there, there is definitely no um, no no career plan after I finished. And speaking of transferable skills, Tony, you went from zooming down the wing to zooming in the air. Oh, bad one. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, not very transferable in that remark. But, uh, yeah, but no. Um, so like Deej had the foothold in the amateur days, so. Uh, uh, I was a trainee broker and not very good at it. And I also didn't like London. I'm a sort of country boy. So hence I finished my rugby up in northeast, back back in the northeast home wise uh, with the Falcons. I kind of didn't want to go back to that. So, uh, yeah, uh, ended up going flying a bit random. But uh, the, the gist of it was just uh, I was bored on the on, in a training session one day. There was a couple of little Piper Warrior, little trainee jets flying over us from the local Newcastle airport. And I thought, Oh, I might go and wander up there and see what I can try my hand at that. And it ended up pretty well 20 years later, uh, you know, 20 year career in aviation. I think there was only one or two of my ex-playing colleagues that ended up on an aeroplane that I was flying. I seem to remember the Northampton Saints what's coming up for a European game at there with EasyJet. And they sort of ranked up, they came up the ramp and saw me flying waving out of the window and sort of swiftly sort of turned back, back into the terminal. They didn't have any choice how to get back on the plane. Um, so, uh, but anyway, and then from there, luckily been with Emirates, uh, flying the 380 with them. So uh, uh, wonderful job. Uh, unfortunately, victim of the pandemic, the 380 fleet at Emirates just got decimated uh, uh, with the uh, with COVID uh, sort of situation. Uh, so got let go from there a couple of years ago. And talking about transferable skills and trying to do something, uh, uh, ended up being an um, executive coach and doing some leadership training and culture training, all that sort of stuff. So um, trying trying not to think of myself as an imposter syndrome. I used to think before games, am I good enough? Uh, sometimes before flights, am I good enough? And um, definitely revisiting that now. But yeah, enjoying it. Is that actually how it Ooh. happened? Is you were bored in a... Newcastle training um don't tell session. Rob that but yeah and you Rob, looked, Rob, you Rob Andrew up was the... taking it was he <laughs> <laughs> or Steve Bates or Dean Wright one of those guys and that, that yeah, was that, that was the turning point is you decided right I'm done with rugby no, well, no, I mean um you know it depended how proactive you were in those days I mean as, as, as Phil says we we sort of straddled both and we kind of you know I was 26 when when the game went pro uh had a few injuries by then anyway so I knew it wasn't gonna last forever and you know we got paid quite well but not that well so um uh, so basically I had to be considering what was coming up next so tried a few things while I was there knew, as I said you didn't want to go back to the city of London and it was whilst trialing a few things so so yeah basically instead of playing the PlayStation I think they were around in those days weren't they not quite that old but um instead of doing that on a Wednesday afternoon or you know instead of you know, just golf you know put my hand to trying some other things in, in in the spare time to see what I might do afterwards and that transpired into the journey that I ended up taking so you said you had injuries by the age of 20 or several injuries by the age of 26. You retired at 30, quite 
young in the grand scheme of things, someone like, I don't know, Johnny May, he's now older than that. And hopefully for England's sake, he has another three, four, maybe four years in front of him. Was your feeling at 30, was that the injuries that started that? Or was your feeling that just that your time had come with rugby? Uh, well, I walked into a meeting with Rob Andrew to talk about having a bit more spare time to do some flying training, and I walked out a bit retired. So um, <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of happened sooner than I anticipated it would. And no, so by then I'd had quite a few injuries, and, uh, and I know, for, unfortunately, Johnny's sort of picked up a couple recently. And also, 30 going flying is quite a, an old age uh, to get mm-hmm. into flying. So um, um, kind of a decision that had to be made, but yeah, Having that it was a, sort it was of a big investment, yeah. Tone, as well, wasn't it? Because the, 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 the cost oh, yeah. of your flying training was huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right, DJ. I mean, so it's about 100 grand and in the end was what the training cost. Wow. Uh, unlike most Massive. occupations, you've got to pay for your own training to be employed. Uh, so, uh, but, so, yeah, any kind of money that I made from uh, soon, soon went uh, from the rugby <laughs> contracts. But, yeah. Big so, investment to make and big step to make, yeah. No, that's I didn't realise it was that, that expensive. That's bonkers. Yeah. And Phil, if I could... So you retired a couple of years after Tony at the age of about 33. Now, if I can speak about your rugby a little bit, you had a slightly difficult time in 97, 98, missing out on the Lions tour um, and Clive Woodward coming in. He had a little bit of, bit of a reshuffle with captaincy, the squad, etc. He did. He did indeed. At that point, I'm not going to ask you about the sort of depth of that and whether you agree with it, but were you ever about to show yourself the door at that point? Did you ever think, OK, well, maybe I'm coming to an end of my uh, of my career? Not, not, not at that stage. Not, not when Clyde kind of first took over. Um, um, I'd kind of, you know, been there under Jeff Cook and and then been in there under Jack Rao and and you know, so Clyde was just, you know, the next, the next, the next head coach from from that perspective. And and actually, when he first came in, he was a bit, he kind of scattered himself around in terms of selection. Um, I think there were a lot of players used in the first, you know, few matches. Um, I think I missed a couple of squads, but. I, otherwise, I was, you know, still there thereabouts in in those squads. Um, probably being involved in about sixty five squads, but you know, I sat on the I sat on the bench for the vast majority of them in the days when you know you didn't bring on um, substitutes. You yeah. only came on when when someone was injured. So yeah, Mr. Carling and Mr. Guscott were, were quite tidy players. So I don't I don't I don't you know bear a grudge against them from too much from that point of view. And then we went on a. Uh, a, a tour to Australia, um, you know, in a pre-season camp or pre-World Cup camp, which was, you know, superb. I ended up spending a month, well, superb apart from the fact that I ended up a month with Austin Healy as my training partner <laughs> <laughs> um, on, a, on, a, on a deserted island that, you know, basically no one else was on, just us, the squad, and, and me and Austin Healy for the month. That was a challenge, but I do, <laughs> I do, I do remember that with fond, with fond memories. Bizarrely, actually, when it came to the 99 World Cup, it was actually when I was playing some of my best rugby. Really enjoyed the game against New Zealand and, and, and other matches. So, yeah, hung in there until, until 99. And then, you know, my last game was watching Yanni De Beer kick five drop goals over my head. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one from his own 10-metre line. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be our day. Yeah, that was my, that was my last game. Yeah. I wish I'd been alive for that game. <laughs> I wasn't even Gosh. born. <laughs> that is harsh, isn't it, Tony? That's just he's, he's, unnecessary. He's just, he's just stuck the knife in that. Yeah, Cambridge, men, Cambridge men used to be different than that. No, I, sorry, excuse me, Tony. I, I, we're on the same side here. Well, no, that's inexcusable behaviour. Sorry. Yeah. Stand There's up a little bit friend, of respect. Yeah. It's all gone to you. It's all gone. Apologies, Phil. I'm still hurting from last Saturday. So you have to, you have, you have to forgive it. Um, and fast forward to 2001 when you gave the domestic game your uh, farewell as well. You said you didn't know what you wanted to do afterwards. Was there ever the sort of general notion is that if you're in that position and you have the intensity of rugby, the 6am training sessions, the lifestyle with the diet and the early nights and the, you know, even the highs after getting the socials, to go from that to what the hell is in front of me, was that a weird transition to make? I think I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a massive transition that no one prepares you for. And, and, and they, they always talk about, you know, I remember talking to some of the you know, Olympic athletes and they said, you know, this, when it, when is it time to retire? Is it it's mind, body and spirit? You know, three aspects to it. And, and if, if two of those have gone, it's definitely time to retire. You can hang on in with, if one of them is gone, but the other two are still in place. 
So if, if your mind, your body and your spirit are all gone, then, you, you, you know, you can, I think the transit, you can move on and you're not feeling like, oh, could I just still, you know, hang in there a bit longer? Uh, and, and also I remember my dad saying, you know, always go earlier. Don't don't hang on. You know, always go whilst it's good. Don't hang on there and be the person that everyone goes, oh, well, he used to be good and he's not anymore. So I think those kind of things were, were I, I felt I left on on, you know, at the right time. I can remember not quite like Tony's training session, but I, we were in a training session and John Mallet, we were doing a tackling session and I had to tackle John Mallet, who is a massive prop at Bath. And, and I was literally trying to hammer him. And I was thinking, I got to a point about what am I doing trying to tackle a 19 stone prop when I'm 14, whatever. And, and then I ended up dislocating my shoulder against Munster in, in, in that last season, which, you know, basically put the, put the nail in. But, but the point is, is it's, it's, it's actually a really, a really big emotional transition. So uh, I, I, I went and watched all the boys play. They'd moved to Wembley because um, well, Wales were playing at Wembley, their home games. So that season, I, I went and watched, you know, all my mates, you know, playing for England at Wembley, Catty and Lawrence and Richard Hill, all those guys. And, and you know, I was standing in the stand and, and it was just, you know, was, I wanted to be on the pitch, you know. Yeah. I knew what they were going through. I knew what, you know, all these other supporters, I was like, none of you know what this is like, you know, <laughs> to, to be out there and all the pressures that go with it, as well as the glory and the joy. But it, but it was, you know, I, and I just missed that adrenaline every Saturday or Friday it, it, it's a big part of your life and if you've been doing it for 12 years which is what I've been doing at Bath then it, it's it's a quite you know quite a big habit to break out of and to and to help yourself emotionally to break out of I, I still think it's um you know it's an area that we don't really help the players with enough you know the RPA does a great job in terms of helping people with career transitions in terms of jobs but the the mental side of things is still underestimated and and helping the players with that I think is um has got to be an important part of what we do in the future Tony do you relate to any of the the FOMO watching from pitch side or did you you seem to have distanced yourself a lot more from the game (laughs) straight afterwards Probably the right tactic, just sort of stepped completely away from it, maybe. I don't know. But um, well, well, Deidre tell you, I, I, basically, the, the first game I watched at Twickenham after I last stepped foot in it with, with some boots on, I was having a picnic in the West Country, in the West Car Park with, with you and yourself, wasn't it, Phil, with you and Yolanda? Uh, and that was 20-odd years later. Uh, so literally wow. last November was the first time I, I stepped foot inside the stadium. I'd been to a couple of hospitality things outside. So I, I think um, for me that it was it was aided by the fact that I was going into something that was just so involved and there was a clear pathway that I needed to follow to to step on that next journey, be like that. I just didn't have time to just wallow, but to you know keep reimmersing myself in it. I remember a Saturday, a friend locally had said, uh, do you fancy, go-? it was in, in um, Five Nations weekend and, and they said, look, do you fancy coming cycling in Hampstead Forest that was near where I lived? And I said, well, I can't possibly. There's an England game on, and uh, you know, you know, everything stops, doesn't it, for an England game? <laughs> um, and I and I sort of said, well, okay, I can record it. I, said, I don't think I could record it. I don't. I don't. I wasn't that big. I said, okay, I'm just not going to watch the game. Went cycling, and the hordes of people that are out there said, well, what are they doing out here? Aren't they? Don't they know there's an international going on? When it dawned on me, it's the reality that well, no, not everything stops for an England international, or there is life outside here. And and obviously, I had a pathway towards another one. I kind of just went on that track and it was probably, apart from that one instance, I didn't really think much about the game until about three or four years after I'd started my career. And it, somebody talked again about the game and I really hadn't thought about a game of rugby much in that time. And it just in a blink of an eye, that bit of time ago, I'm like teach similar, similar age children. My, my kids were sort of very young at that age and you're just sort of so involved with that as well. I had so many distractions away from the sport that I didn't really give it much thought. And I think if I, you know, I, I can't say what goes on right now uh, in terms of sport given to people by the likes of Hoppers and Damon Hopley with the RPA, et cetera, and what clubs are doing. But I know that for myself, probably one of the other things that helped me is that even when I was playing the sport, I didn't identify myself as being Tony Underwood, the rugby player. It, it was something that I did. But it, but it didn't sort of consume me. It wasn't sort of, it, was just, it wasn't just my only aspect of my life. And, and I would say the same thing when it came to stopping flying, because that's a big thing to come away from being a captain of an A380 and, you know, all the, oh, don't you know, captain, all the four stripes and all that sort of stuff. And if, you, if, if that's how you identify yourself, 
it can be a very big thing to leave behind. But again, that's a transition I think I've made quite easily because I just think inherently I've, I've thankfully had this aspect of not not allowing myself to get go down that road. Yeah. Can I just chip in there, Ollie? Um, this is from the outside looking in. It always strikes me that rugby players, and particularly the modern day rugby player, although you two will both you know straddled it, have a particularly difficult and unique job. You, you've got. Uh, a career which basically is between what 20 and 32 33 34 it's a short earning period you don't earn life-changing money not unless you are absolutely the top and you get all the deals so you always know at some stage that you will have to find another career and the other thing is injuries you know 30 35 40 percent of all players are going to get serious injuries you do know that at some stage you're going to cop it and if you copy it when you're 22, 23, 24, your career is over. Mm-hmm. So all that is hanging over the professional rugby player. And it makes it, well, it's, I think it's a pressure. I think it's an underrated pressure that you guys lived with. And it's something we don't factor in enough. It's in the back of your mind all the time that you're going to have to, at some stage, make a living out of the game. And it could be next week. Yeah. And, and, and I would add to that, I would add to that, the, um, you know, the performance pressure. Uh, you, you know, you're you're under pressure every week, you know, most importantly from your peers, actually, you know, the fans obviously are vital as well, but, you know, it is actually your peers, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to let them down. And and so you've kind of got that, you know, anxiety kind of going into the match and, and you know, got to turn that to, to, to good use in it. But, but, you know, it is a, it's pretty relentless. Um, and, and the way, the way of life as a professional rugby player now is, you know, you don't, it's not like us where we can book our holiday every quarter and go for a week somewhere and chill out and downtime. You you don't get any holiday, or we didn't until recently, you know, for, for the whole season. You know, you have to take all your holiday in one go. Well, that's not ideal either, is it? I mean, that's not a genuine break, is it? it you're forced to take five weeks in one go. It, it should be spread out. And the better clubs, and Saracens have been very good at this, have managed their players well from that point of view and said, yeah, that week you can have that off go book your holiday to Tenerife or whatever and take a proper break mentally as much as physically from the game. And so you've kind of got all that going on as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a, just just trying to make sure you can um, can deal with all of those those pressures is, is, is part of the challenge of, of, of being a top player. Obviously, the professional athlete mindset is very, can be very binary. You win, you lose, you pass, you fail, you beat your personal best in the gym or you don't. How was that transition? And I'm going to ask both of you, Tony and Phil, uh, to your respective careers. Was that weird when you've gone from, you know, I know, Tony, you said it wasn't your identity, but it was certainly a part of your identity, your Mm. elite abilities over the past 10, 15 years to thinking, okay, I'm out of rugby. How am I going to take my mindset and the way I've been reared forwards from here and probably have to go through the 10, 15 years of training as you do as a professional athlete to get to where you want to be there's pros and cons to it i think um because the reality is outside of these if you like elite environments you know things are different without putting the fear of god into anyone who's a a, a nervous flyer the reality is that whereas a massive thing would be building team spirit and building a culture of of an environment you're in we didn't have the time to do that in an airplane so you know whereas my mindset would always be trying to sort of cultivate some this this culture of excellence if you like amongst us all you're you're dealing with a little bit of apathy when it comes to that and so changing your mindset into to to the reality of what was very normal for us and transferring that into another environment is probably for me and the dynamics of just working with others and, and, and trying to get, you know, I think the best out of all of us is probably the most frustrating thing for me, if you like, that I, that I, that I sort of coped with. And these big highs and lows that you talk about, I mean, if nothing else, you've got an ability with the rugby, at least if you've had a shocker one week, hopefully you didn't have that too many of those, uh, that you've got a chance to sort of bring, bring yourself back up again and, you know, prove to your teammates again that you've you got the capability the following week. Uh, reality in most time in work you don't have that ability to sort of shine if you like all the time and I think it's that frustration of not having the ability to be able to perform you know perform if you like and get recognition for that performance and it all be dumbed down if you like what you're doing in life and uh, so yeah adjustments big adjustments that you have to make yeah sorry just jumping up that 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 performance bit is there for everyone to see every week you know that that, that's the point you know in, in in most other workplaces what Apart from you know potentially the armed forces, it's not, and and you know so and there's also a direct correlation. You know people can see what your individual input 
amongst that team was to 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 yeah. you know you played well or you didn't to the winning or the losing and, and the result that week and then lots of people are watching you and talking about it and now with social media it's all over social media so you, there's nowhere to hide from that at all at least in our day we had you know respected journalist Brendan didn't we who uh, so that's slightly different and now you've got every every man woman and dog you know having a two penneth at you you know whatever you've done so you've got to get used to that and you've got to be comfortable in that but that you said so you're getting your performance review every week basically mm. you know and it's being done out in front of everyone else where that doesn't happen in 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 any other you know workplace so so that you know that that is very different and i think that does make you you know you're driven it's actually if you go back to it it's very selfish you know when you first start you sacrifice a lot i missed loads of weddings i missed loads of things that should have done with my wife and family and didn't and you sacrifice all of these things and so it's a selfish way of life to begin with because you 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 have to be to, to, to get to the highest level. I mean, obviously, if you want to get to the highest level. Yeah, I was I was watching the Amazon documentary on the late Shane Warne, rest his soul, and he was saying stuff very similar to that is his one regret from his playing days was he couldn't be there for his kids. Luckily, if you have the right environment around you, his kids said they were very understanding of that. But I think that's something people don't see is to make it, especially in the professional era, you have to be a little bit selfish and make sacrifices that the average person doesn't want to be making. Brendan, did you have something you wanted to say? Actually, I just wanted to follow up on a point of Phil's there about part of being a professional rugby player is you have the performance, which is measured on a daily basis, hourly basis almost. But what always intrigues me with you guys when you retire is what takes the place of the opponent? Because you spend, as a sportsman, as a rugby player, you spend your entire week or most of that week thinking of the team you're playing against on Saturday, thinking of the individual opponent you've got to better. And it, you know, it consumes your life I would think you know sports about beating the opposition then suddenly you wake up on the Monday morning after you retired and you haven't got an opponent you've you've got ways of measuring your continued health and fitness you can set yourself targets in your new jobs but who, who are you beating mentally or do you just cut off and you no longer have to beat anybody else in your life dare I say it didn't change for me um my opponent was never the guy stood opposite me that makes sense. I, I measured myself up against not trying to beat the opponent, but just be the best version of myself I could be. I've had to look back on this recently and, and ponder why. And I think probably, probably it stems from the fact that I could never anticipate being the best or beating everyone else in the world because I wasn't even the best in my family at playing game rugby. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and, and irrespective of whether Rory went on to become however many caps, et cetera, top try score, et cetera, et cetera. Irrespective of that, when you're six years younger than your older brothers and you're getting beaten up by all the time by them, I grew up conditioned with being, well, I'm never going to win at this. So I just, I just kind of grew up thinking, well, okay, I've just got to be the best version of myself that I can be. I mean, bearing in mind, maybe it's just because of the way I played the game. I was never really up against the one-on-one just on my winger most of the time. I used to get around the pitch quite a bit and just be taking on people wherever I, wherever, wherever Phil would give me a pass, to be honest. But, um, and, and, and so um, the reality is that, um, you know, that's how I approached it. And so that, if you like, is sort of transitioned reasonably well for me in terms of having a lack of a... Uh, of, a, of a winger against me or a, or a, or a, or a team against me, but a sense of just, you know, st- keeping to strive and um, be, you know, as Deidre was saying, just that relentless sort of approach to just be the best version of ourselves we could be. That's what we always try and strive for. And I'd add to that, Brendan, I think, I think it's similar. With it. It's never, I think rugby is a beautiful game because of this, because it's never one-on-one. So I, I was like Tony. I would never worry about you know who who I was up against as a centre. It was it was all about you know the team, and and your team and getting your team to play better than theirs collectively. Um, because you know that's the beauty of rugby. You know what you're doing it, you know, is manoeuvring other people out of position to create space for other people on your team, and that's what you try and do. You're trying to create space for others and get the ball to those people in that space which obviously, you know, happened quite often with Tony. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the, 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 only, the only time I've ever been nervous of kind of, you know, one-on-one actually was a, was a sevens uh, competition when, yeah. when, we, yeah. when, we, when we ended up, because that is the ultimate, you know, when you are exposed. And we ended up playing Leicester, didn't we, in the final of the, um, of the, of the club sevens. 
and, and I had a Rory Underwood and a Tony Underwood against me. And, and I was bizarrely on the wing. I've no idea why. Um, and all I all I would do is as soon as, you know, the, 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 their forwards got around the ball, I, I'd run straight and stand opposite Rory. And I'd, I'd literally stand a metre from him. So when they pass it to him, I could just grab him and catch him, attack him straight away. Because if he got the ball in any space, I was never going to stop him. So, yeah. so, so yeah. that was the only time I was ever very conscious of one-on-ones. Yeah. Seven, sevens is brutal from that point of view. So, yeah. so guys, I'm not going to let you off the hook here totally, because everything you say makes perfect sense. But do you still not feel that need to win sometimes at something? Is that not hardwired into your system that you, you whatever it is, even if it's, I don't know, if you go fishing, do you want to be the one who gets the fish, the biggest fish? Do you have to win at all? I think, I, I, I mean, it's still innate in you. You know, it's, it's there. You're not going to, you know, completely subjugate it. It's an, it's an innate, you know, driver inside you. That, that does that. But I, I think I've, you know, I played a bit of five-a-side football after I, I finished and that was my competitive outlet and that was good enough for me. And also I think as you, you just, you just learn to temper it. I, and I don't have now that burning desire to always, to always win. I mean, if I'm, if I'm playing against John Callard in golf, then definitely I've got a burning <laughs> desire to win. So, so certain people you, you still have that with, but you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, Playing against you know others who weren't you know, necessarily players of that era, it's not it's not quite it's not quite as driven. It's 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 not as um, it's not as burning as it was then. I think the burning desire is to compete. So if I'm playing a monopoly, if I'm playing golf or whatever, like all these things, I want to compete to my best of my. I have a burning desire to just keep striving to. Do. I really do not care about the result. I don't know. I I point. And this is a bit of a sports question as well, because I was talking, you know, when you're doing anything for your group, your team, when you're the chief executive, I can kind of understand where everything is about winning. But I was liking it to two, two things I always remember is Kevin Keegan's in Newcastle United and when they were 10 points ahead and never won that league. And that old quote about, I'd love it if, we, you know, uh, you know, we'd do, we'd do Ferguson and, and beat United. And they didn't win it and they stopped playing. And I was there when they were playing that football. They were immense to watch. And the uplift in the city watching that team then was unbelievable. Uh, but they, they went on to lose and then they decided to change things and go back to sort of the way they played and lost that spirit about how they were playing. I'd also look at a recent game between City and Liverpool. Unbelievable spectacle, unbelievable sport to watch. Ended up 2 all, And, in, you know, you talk to an American, you know, that old Ted Lasso quote about, sorry, you play a game and they end up drawing in a tie. Or cricket, you end up having five days of cricket and you have a tie. But that's the beauty of sports for me is that it, it, it's watching that unbelievable competition that goes on. And I really don't care if someone wins or loses on the back of this. Tony, I think you could do well to go and do your lecture and spill to the current England squad. I, I don't mean that even flippantly. because like You get the impression sometimes, I'm thinking like the Autumn Cup, where this desire to win and beat the opponent, which I'm talking about, took over and they completely missed the opportunity to light up the game to play the way they wanted to play, to play with a freedom, entertain the crowd. It wasn't a crowd, but the people watching at home on TV and COVID. And that absolute laser on winning just took over and they completely missed three, three or four matches. They could have progressed the, the game to another level. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And one final question just in this sort of domain, and Tony, you've alluded to it a couple of times. I'm not going to say imposter syndrome, but almost reverse imposter syndrome, where you go from, and I know, Tony, you've already said you weren't the best in your family, but say on the rugby field, <laughs> away, away from Rory, you know, you go up through the school system, through the academy system, and you're always one of the standout players on the field. When you're a pro, obviously, players will kick you off your high horse from a, on occasion. But when you go into a non-rugby room, people are like, OK, that's Tony Underwood, that's Phil Glanville, blah, blah, blah. You go into these situations in which you're in a corporate environment, a flying environment, whatever, and all of a sudden you're back to being small fish, big pond. Is that weird from going from a place where you're in the spotlight to much less in the spotlight? And all of a sudden you're thinking, OK, I'm kind of starting from scratch here. I mean, I'm going to chuck, chuck a big, big thing in here because um, effectively what you realise when you step out of the game at 32, as I did, you're finishing the game, but you know, you could apply that to, to the whole of your life and actually say, you know, what, what would you feel and what would you have achieved and what would you have got you know, when you retire at 65 or whatever it, it ends up being? And that's what you realise is that actually you're, you're completely replaceable. And so the next 
person in, it takes your place, and and that's it. And the team carries on. Chunk happy, happy, dory. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, surprise, surprise! They didn't fall yeah. apart when you left. Yeah. Oh, surprise, surprise! They might even have got better when you left. You know, so <laughs> that, that's 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 the the reality of it. And 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 I kind of learned that. And actually, I that's been a great thing for me because I then applied that to the rest of my career, which is the important things are your family and your friends, and and those are the most important things in terms of you know the people who are going to be there for you and support you and vice versa during life because we're all driven we still are driven we're going to do everything we can to the absolute best of our ability and that's what you do but what but what you realize is at the end of the day you know what counts is your family and your friends and so why would you go and compromise or not prioritize your family and your friends no i'm not I, i'm going to prioritize them and because they're the most important thing funny anything to add to that yeah, but just to sort of touch on the uh, the perspective gained by the move away, but also the perspective about this term. I, I think I, you mentioned it, and I, I've used it a couple of times. Imposter syndrome. I, I think actually they might call it that, but it's really. I think what we all had is is, is almost healthy to have that sense of just almost humility that am I good enough today? Have I done enough today in my preparation? Am I going to let my guys down? Because it's it, it's only with that sort of wanting to be striving to be better at what you're doing etc etc you're questioning yourself all the time about that that you do get better and I think it's the ones that sit, sit rest on their laurels with that sense of oh no I don't need to try any hard uh, and, and put the effort in that's required and don't have that sense of questioning themselves and I think imposter syndrome is a bit of a blanket statement from that but actually turn it around and give it a positive reframing a sense of this is actually a healthy self-doubt to have because that's the self-doubt that strives you to that drives you to sort of be better at things. And, and, and that's what I think I've applied outside of and, and keep, keep asking themselves questions, whether you're flying an airplane or standing in front of a, whoever you're coaching that day to sort of say, have I brought myself to this in my whole stuff? Am I going to let someone down today or am I going to put my best self forward? Now, this would be a slightly different conversation if you both had grown up in the professional era of rugby. Uh, and the difficulty I have with it now, and I think something that maybe also isn't acknowledged enough is that, to make it in rugby, it requires more commitment than it ever has because it's high risk, but also high reward. You're making it on the professional stage. It's given more of a platform than ever. But the coaching, the age grade system, it's also more rigorous, more efficient, more populous than ever at the same time. Now, is there something to be said then for more than ever? And I'm speaking to you both as parents as well. Those around raising parents, be it coaches or Uh, raising kids sorry being coaches parents or support systems have a responsibility to make sure that the role of the dice on a professional career for a 15 year old who thinks they can make it you know that's not just an all narrow-minded commitment thing so that if they don't make it that isn't just a massive void to fill afterwards well i've got a quick answer to that because i don't unfortunately i don't have the problem that Phil's having with his, you know, no, of course, know, in terms but, uh, of try, trying not to be prescriptive, trying not to be saying, oh, this is the path you need to take and let, allowing them the space to find their own pathway into what they want to do and, and trying to provide the support for it. I think we, we can all agree, Ollie, not, not, maybe not you because you're not filling that role just yet, but you're making it up every day as you're going along. <laughs> and, uh, and part of that is your role as a parent, uh, uh, and 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 that adapting as you're going ahead as, it, as, as they're getting older. Mine are 24 and 22 now, so whatever they need, just being there for them for that. I think that's all I can say. And Phil, yeah. I can't come to you about this without obviously mentioning your approach with Tom. Um, yeah, you knew you were bringing up a boy who I don't know whether his plan was following his father's footsteps was his point of view, but did you ever feel that you needed to make sure that Tom had a plan B? Yeah, I think what Tony said is spot on. You know, it's got to come from them. And they, you just support, you know, give them experiences, which, you know, hopefully will help them, you know, choose what they want to do in their career and give them a taste of that. And let's be honest, you know, who, who knows what they want to do when they're 16, you know, let, probably don't even know what you want to do, when you, you know, if you go to uni, go to university, you know, so it's not like everyone has that calling. So I think that that kind of whole, you know, let's support them to do what they want to do is to definitely the approach you land and, and I took and, and then, you know, Tom had an older brother and a younger brother. All three of them played in, in, in the Bath Academy, were, were in that Bath Academy training programme. 
so he kind of you know saw his elder brother kind of go through it you know before him and 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 then and then he was obviously part of it and I, and I think because it's a late specialization sport you know this is where we have to be really careful with the academy system that they're not narrowed down into you know the single sport of rugby too soon and you know all of the benefits about playing multiple sports for as long as possible in terms of your physical maturation and and, and everything else that's developed as a result of that are all proven you know, so we, we want to be careful that we don't um, you know, narrow those boys and girls increasingly. It will become girls as well into that space. So back to the point about them coming to, to, to terms with it. You know, Tom, Tom was driven to, 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 to want to, you know, he was passionate about the game. You know, he would watch videos, he would watch matches, he would watch other stuff, you know. And his vision actually was kind of one of his best attributes when he was playing fly half. I mean, he only moved from fly half. You know when he when he got his professional contract, um, and and he was always able to see that space and get the ball to where the space wanted needed to be. So I I I I think um, you know he he was different because that was you know, we gave him that opportunity to explore it, and then he took it. He drove it there himself. We just helped and enabled that, and and tried to keep him grounded, and still do now. You know when when he comes around for Sunday lunch after a match, if it hasn't gone well, and they've been. A couple of the results this season have been obviously pretty bad. You know, they don't want to be talking about the game. They want to be talking about what's on TV and what we're having for lunch and, you know, taking the mick out of your brother or just normal stuff. Yeah, I was going to say that's so interesting to hear Phil say that. And it just touches on a point. I was talking to Hollywood before we came on. Um, academies are very, very good and they produce high quality athletes. But you have to be careful. And exactly as Phil says, you know, you can't have that specialization too soon and uh, you shouldn't have that specialization too soon. And I think rugby has almost got to the point where it's coming full circle now. Both you guys were bright, went to Oxford, Cambridge, combined your early rugby years with your education and everything that university involves. And that's great. And I'm seeing a, a return to that. And I'm thinking particularly of the Bucks tournament, which I think is excellent. I've watched it quite closely in the last couple of years and my old lot Exeter are playing in the final this year against Durham on they Wednesday. Are. I think. Yeah. They are. You, you'll, be lo- you'll be losing that one, Brendan. I'm sorry, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure losing that one. Because uh, I was at <laughs> Durham before Oxford, so you'll be losing you that one. Sorry. Yeah, we're confident. <laughs> uh, but the point is, and um, Cardiff Metro is, is the in vogue um, example here of producing great players, Don Brandt, Luke Northmore, Tom Pearson at London Irish, who's a terrific prospect. They kept in touch with their clubs. And then at 21, they come out fully-fledged human beings into the senior game. And they've got, but they've got that background. And, and my point there is that I think they can then concentrate, you know, 100% on their professional rugby careers in the sure knowledge that as they get towards their late 20s, early 30s, they already have something in the bank which they can take forward for when they have to retire. And I think it's becoming a big recruiting ground, the Bucks competition. I think it's, it's rugby's going to go down that way more and more with the Prem clubs. I think they've clocked onto it that they can get the more rounded individual and the guy who knows what he wants in life and, and rugby. And, 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 and I would say there's certain clubs that are doing it very well. Exeter have always done that really well with Exeter yep. University. Bath have started doing it with Bath University really well. To you, I don't know why Newcastle are not Newcastle, all, yeah. all yeah. over Durham more yeah. than they sh- more more yeah. than they should be. There's a bit there, but you know, mm. so so it is. And we've talked about this at the RFU actually because you know it would be fantastic to have a, a genuine what I call a parallel pathway where you know you're either going you know into full time rugby or you're going into full time education with rugby as part of that, and you can either go for this two three years you know through either part of that and actually. They should, it should all be integrated, you know. So in terms of picking an England under 20, it doesn't matter if you've gone to university or into a full-time professional academy contract. You're still in the mix for that, you know, selection and that decision. And, th- and then obviously when you kick on, you know, a, a, over and above that. And it, and it wouldn't take much investment because the, the university's already invested a huge amount into, into those performance programmes. And a lot of university environments are, are high performance anyway. You know, the directors of rugby would say, well, it's not full-time rugby. And, and that's right. Uh, but the benefits are they've got a whole network of other friends they develop. And, and they, they've got, you know, their mind is on other things other, yeah. other than the rugby for that period. 
So that that would be lovely. And then kind of join it back up again, as you say, when they become, you know, full, full, full time professionals. If, if we could achieve that and, 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 and just get that genuine approach where that is a recognised part of the pathway, you don't just have to get a contract at 18. You can go to university, you're still going to be looked at, still developed, still selected, then, yeah, that would be superb. Do you think that's compatible with, I mentioned earlier that the professional, with the professional circuit now, you have to be more committed, work harder, make more sacrifices. Do you think that the university system and bringing up players at the age of 18, 19, 20, without the full immersion in the professional game, do you think that's compatible with that? You need to have that desire, that drive, make those sacrifices, etc. And compatible with a more prosperous future for England rugby on the whole as well. I it's not necessarily going to produce the best version of a player who's keeping up his or her degree at the same time, for example. I, I mean, it's the tra- there's a bit of a trade-off, Ollie. There's a, definitely a bit of a trade-off because obviously you're not going to be doing all of the, the technical and the physical conditioning that, that you would be doing if you're a full-time player. So, and, and also by the very fact that you're with elite other players who will play pro, you, know, you get better by training with higher quality players. You wouldn't have that as high quality in the university environment. But the, tr- the trade-off is you're, you're, you're getting external you know, inputs to your kind of character development. You're getting a different perspective on a whole range of other different people who've come from all sorts of different walks of life. So you're understanding the diversity of thought and, 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 and what goes into a team much better. And, and you're still using your brain. And one of the issues I know that Eddie's you know, had is, you know, the lack of leadership, you know, with, with, with some of the guys who come through the academy system, they're not empowered to lead and they can't recognise and, you know, it, it's almost like they have to go through a training programme and forced into it. Well, the leadership development of finding your own house and who am I going to share with and sort my, you know, course out and, oh, God, I've got this deadline, that deadline to meet for that. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty, you know, beneficial environment to be in from a leadership perspective and then you're sitting down there and talking to people who come from all all other walks of life who you would never meet in a rugby environment well that's all good you know from a leadership and a people management perspective so I kind of think you know, it's a bit of a trade-off you're going to compromise on some areas you're, you know their progression may not be as fast as if they went full-time into you know the, the, the contract the, the contracted role the, the other side of it is we a lot of those young contracted players 18 19 20 they don't play enough games because there isn't a competition for them to play in. And, you know, there was the Premiership Cup. You know, that's now not going to run next season because, you know, it's too congested. So where are these, where are these 18, 19-year-olds who would never be in the first team, especially in the forwards, you know, for probably a two or three-year period, where are they going to play? And, and where are they playing? Because a lot of them are just training. You know, you've got to play the games. I think it's really interesting. So thanks for bringing that up, Brendan. We are going to put a pause in proceedings, retirement related, and go through Tony Underwood and Phil de Glanville's random rugby 15. 15 questions, quick fire-ish. All right, Tony, <laughs> I'll come to you first. Cool. Okay. Nickname? Lots, but usually to you for obvious reasons. <laughs> oh, Hollywood or Hammer? Do you want to explain either of them? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know Hollywood, and I won't make you say why it was Hollywood. Why Hammer? I don't think a 14-stone hammer is much. much <laughs> that, that's exactly why Hammer. <laughs> Irony. Irony. <laughs> Irony is there, all written through it. <laughs> Best rugby memory? I'm going to be really odd and just say for each team that I played for. So, unfortunately, not against um, Phil's uh, varsity match team, but I won my second varsity match against Oxford with Cambridge. Falcons winning the the Premiership. England, um, yeah, a World Cup quarterfinal, but not a semi-final. And then the Lions, 97, South Africa too. Awesome. Phil? Uh, so it'll be League and Cup double for Bath as a, a skipper. Uh, I can't remember which year that was. Uh, not Mid-90s anyway. And then winning the Heineken... European Cup in, in 1998, 10 days after the birth of our first son. So, so that, was, uh, that was quite a challenging time, and, and, but a very special match. Special for different reasons, most embarrassing rugby memory. Well, I guess I've got to say 1995 semi-final, Mr Lomu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could have foreseen that one. Again, if you guys aren't going to bring it up in the day, then I'll. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm sure you're fed up of talking about it. To be honest, You're too nice, but yeah, probably. Yeah. 
I was very glad I was on the bench that day. So yeah, that's, the few... that's the problem with tactical substitutions. That they could have had. I mean, we had to be whisked off after 10 minutes, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, mine would be losing to Wigan in rugby league. I think his score was 72-6. When rugby went professional, we played Wigan in a, a rugby league game and a rugby union game. Uh, yeah. And they had, you know, Andy Farrell and Twiga oh. Marla, legend, Jason Robinson. And yeah, we lost 72-6. That was... That's, yeah, that's the only time I've ever been scared before I've gone on a rugby pitch. Wow. Pre-game tune? Oh, um, I didn't have any. Bat, bat out of hell, meatloaf. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Post-game meal? Uh, well, pre, uh, well, pre-amateurism, sorry, pre-professionalism, probably a, a burger. <laughs> uh, I won't give the brand. And uh, after, yeah, I'm sure it was a... I'm, I'm, after I could afford a steak and chips, so... Yeah, that's, that's the same. Steak and chips. Yeah, definitely. Going back, to, sorry, going back to that meatloaf song, Phil. Isn't that like twelve minutes long or something? That'll get, get you through the entire <laughs> warm up. Yeah, I actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say another little secret here because you know, in the days before, you know, we used to have cassettes. You know, don't know if you can remember that, but actually, we'd have, we'd have a car would be parked. Our car, my car, would be parked outside the um, the hotel in in Richmond, uh, and a, a catty, my cat and I would go and sit outside and we'd put the cassette in. And we'd sit in the car and turn the volume up really, really loud for an in game. I'd just sit there for 12 minutes and blast it out. <laughs> 12 minutes. We were ready then. <laughs> Best player you played against? You know, it's, it might be controversial by saying Inga, Inga Twigamala. Philippe Seller, French centre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, best player you've played with? You can't well, say fortunate. Well, now I was fortunate. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to play with Inga as well. So, uh, but it meant I had to train against them every week. But yeah, yeah. Inga <laughs> Twigamala. Uh, mine would be Richard Hill. Favorite player right now, and I'm tempted to ban Antoine Dupont because that's what oh. everyone has said. <laughs> Mario Toji. I'm, I'm going to go Alex Dombran. Okay, rugby idol. Oh, Phil De Glan- No, um... <laughs> <laughs> no, he was. Love playing with Phil. But rugby Idol. Um, I didn't watch a lot of rugby, really. Rory Underwood, because I always used to go and watch him play most of the time. I yeah. guess watching those those teams, yeah. Uh, Serge Blanco. Okay. Oh yeah, super. Uh, I'm I'm going to go uh, a Bath legend who, who who probably be very embarrassed if he does end up hearing this, but John Hall. Favorite stadium. Uh, I'm going to have to say the Arms Park when, well, the old, as it were, and when they were singing their anthem, it brought a tear to my eyes. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'd, 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 I mean, that is a special, that was a special stadium. It still, still is. This Hearing the Welsh anthem is superb. But I'm, I'm going to go for, for Loftus Versfeld in Pretoria, oh, which, is, which is where we had our first test match in South Africa after apartheid. And Nelson Mandela came down the steps uh, and met us all and these helicopters all flying around everywhere. And then yeah, that was just an, so, so special. And it, uh, it helped we won as well. Amazing. CJ, I was, I was actually going to say that for a lot of other, lot of, there were great reasons, but also it's just a great track as a back to play on. I love yeah. that pitch. Yeah, yeah. Favourite gym exercise? <laughs> well, so gym, pre, pre-professionalism or after-professionalism um, um, actually doing more now my, my youngest is a big big powerlifter sort of stuff so I try and do some, try and keep keep up with uh, with Tula but um, uh, deadlift nice that's a that's a proper weightlift move that is yeah. uh, I, because I ended up dislocating both shoulders and having operations and uh, ended up doing so I'm going to go shoulder press because I've spent hours doing shoulder presses <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, that's a, those are both original answers, actually. We haven't had them yet. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Probably stayed being a broker. Yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. not being that happy, but I, I, I love what I'm doing now, so executive coach. I think I would probably still be doing what I did at Hartbury for three years and be a, a director of sport and education mm. somewhere, uh, just not quite so far away. Uh, superstitions. Uh, I used to fight with a few people to be the last to run out on the pitch, but it was never a big thing. Um, I just always having the... I think the length of your... Remember we used to have those white things we used to tie up our garters, was it? Uh, used to tie up our socks with. And it just had to be... The, the bit that was showing was just about the right length and that was about it. I, I, <laughs> OCD, I, that's not superstition. <laughs> there you go. I, I mean, we always used to change in the same place, even though we didn't have dedicated changing spots. And if anyone took your spot, that was trouble. But I always used to wear uh, an old pair of white socks underneath my 
you know, club socks or, or national socks and, and the same pair every time. So they, they got, when they started to, you know, get holes in around the heels and everything, I'd still wear them. Same pair of socks every, every single week. With washing machine in the middle, I, I did hope. wash them. I okay, did wash them. So I, I know it's. I know that's quite a common. But some players just are like they are. People used to are. move away from Deej in the changing room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a way to get people not to steal your spot. <laughs> Rugby rule you would change. I I just don't like the amount of substitutions that go on. Uh, I I I know there's pros and cons about that argument, but I I do think it would just free up the game a little bit more. You know, rather than this idea of special specialization um what do they what do you call them nowadays the finishers, finishers or whatever. Yeah. uh you know i think we can get away from that sort of mentality and you needed an 80 minute rounded athlete that would be it yeah uh, and any anything like that, that 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 actually you know moves the athlete into more endurance athletes rather than power athletes uh i think is going to be good for the game so that that would be one and then, and then anything anything really that stops defences coming forward as aggressively as they do, so you reduce the collisions in the middle, just stopping people being able to come forward as aggressively yeah. into the tackle as possible, give them more uncertainty about who they're tackling would be great. And lastly, in a couple of words, best thing about working in rugby? Uh, teammates. Yeah. Camar- camaraderie. Yeah. Teammates. Fantastic. Anywhere you go in the world, rugby connects you. Absolutely. Yeah, and- and I think, sorry, just say that you just probably most surprising thing outside of the sport is you, you come across guys who just maybe not involved in team team sports or being involved in teams, successful teams. When you uh, and, and that's what shocked me the most, and that's what I'm really rekindling that aspect of sharing success, but also sharing failure together with others. And, and just I, I, yeah. you know, I miss that. Awesome, thank you for doing that, guys. That was fantastic. Now, the last bit I want to speak about, and we have alluded to it in part is the mental health side of things and more what the modern game can be doing to potentially rear their players towards retirement and a life without the thrill of professional rugby now this isn't just rugby I think rugby is particularly susceptible and I'll explain why I think that's the case we've seen it with several examples Johnny Wilkinson is one he's spoken in great depth about his retirement also after the World Cup win feeling of flatness and what's next Andy Murray has repeatedly said after his hip injuries, he had zero interest in doing anything else. Michael Phelps has spoken about being locked up in his room. Kelly Holmes said she lost her entire identity after retiring. If sport is borderline all you know, and it will be for a lot of these professional athletes, how do you mitigate that impact? Is it uh, what Brendan said, for example, about making sure you have a degree under your belt or something like that? Or do you think there's something that needs to come into the game a bit more, which is in the twilight years of your career? actually making sure people get around the psychological burden of retirement and the void that it leaves. In my mind, this approach to mental health would also touch upon what you're talking about, about the use of academies and maybe this university sort of thing. I think actually performance as a whole could be improved if we have a, a more rounded approach about how you do anything. And, and, and sport especially, you know, for all the reasons that Phil mentioned about, you know, having a well-rounded sort of background, having some other interests outside, something else that you bring, whether, you know, the dynamic of when you're operating in a team is much more than just whether you can go and tackle someone harder and, and, and lift a lift heavy on a bench press or, or you know, know this tactic better than the the, the, dy- the fluid dynamism when you're operating in a team environment requires so much more behaviorally that is that I think is just missed. And this whole aspect of approaching things behaviorally on a performance basis, I think, will go a long way to also helping on the mental health side of things because. As, as a result of that, you, you, you're just approaching things in a totally different way. It's not all about rugby. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just building on that, and to, to you, that's spot on. You know, it's the diversity of the things you're doing you know, in the course of your time as a professional rugby player that's important. And, and so the broader and the deeper and, and the more experiences you can get outside the game during that period, the better. Because, yeah, it's back to making you as, as, as resilient and as you know, well-rounded an individual as you can. And that's all going to help. But also, I think, you know, you do need actually at the point of, of, of retirement, just some, just some dedicated support to help you through that period. You know, the first time you wake up, you know, you're not going to training. You don't have to drive to the training, you know, all the way through to the probably the hardest thing, I think, you know, the start of the next season and seeing all your friends back training and then playing and watching matches and I think everyone will have different ways of, of, of dealing with that some will, will kind of you know want to stay with it and others you know might do what TU did and you know will go the opposite end of the spectrum just walk away from it completely but whatever's going to work for you I think 
Um, but I think there needs to be dedicated, you know, personal support during that probably six month period just to just to help, you know, someone as a I'm not talking about counseling necessarily, but someone to help you through that actual period and 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 just to talk to you about it. That that would be good. So the, the diversity of, of of experience during the course of your professional career and then a dedicated time to help you with that transition and, and just understanding it's going to be hard. This is, a, you know, it's very different from when you guys retired or slightly different at the very least. Obviously, the age of social media, in my opinion, makes this worse because yeah. we speak about separation and taking having that distance. I was, I was on um, with Rocky Clark last week and she was saying how to watch the Red Roses do so well and be involved on a social media level. You know, she wants to get into punditry and writing articles, etc. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And it's not just that, it's if you thrive in the spotlight and you love the spotlight and the adrenaline highs or even the adrenaline lows and you watch yourself, your followers decrease, your interactions disappear, you then see the success of the team that you used to be a part of on social media, TV. You can't get that distance. You can't get that separation. And do we think that a, a support system in the six months after retirement is enough to provide the necessary awareness information, the self-awareness to address that sort of social media, not bubble, but blanket that we're all in? I mean, I, I, you talk to anyone in any schools, um, any teachers in any schools, and, and they, they detest social media and they would, take, they would give it all back. You know, if they if they had the chance, because of the impact on the children and, and young pupils that, that that they're dealing with, so it's trying to you know this, this is happening everywhere. It's not you know just in professional sport, but obviously in professional sport you're in the in that public bubble you know even more. And I would find it really difficult. Uh, you know, just having the, the ability for any random person who might know nothing about rugby at all to just have a pot at you would be really hard, hard to take. And I know people say, oh, I don't read it, but I think, you know, you only just to get, you know, a glimpse of it and you, and you know, it's there. So I, I, it's a big, big issue, which, um, cause you can't get away from it. Can you? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of negatives to it. And obviously it's such a big issue, Ollie. I mean, we can't, we're not going to solve it, are we ourselves? No, but it does imbue clubs with extra responsibility, doesn't it? That players have to be educated on, the dangers both in the early years of their career and what that spotlight is going to do and the later years of their career and what that spotlight disappearing is going to do. Yeah, if I can add to that. It's just that sense of, to me, the first aspect that people fall short on when they're really struggling with this stuff is just this sense of lack of control over things. And I think that's the big issue with social media. You just don't have any real control over what's going on there. So you have to sort of start focusing on really being able to do that. Now, that's a really, really difficult conversation to have with yourself to just say, right, you know, what can I shed and what can I turn my, you know, turn, turn a blind eye to and not and to try and ignore. But that's, it's difficult. So you're just so reliant on your, your support network around you. And you're absolutely right to bring the clubs as being hugely, you know, everyone can be, you know, what, what level of accountability can you give towards yourself in terms of what you have in terms of, you got these players, you got these kids, what support can you give them? And I think they need to step up when it comes to that. I don't know whether they are. Sorry, that's me just talking out. But if they're not, they need to be because that's that's a role that they can control. They can help support the players with that. And if they can, it's, it, you know, it's it, I think um, beholden upon them to provide that for these for these guys. And you know, in terms of when and, and where, I come back to that point. I just think it needs to be whilst they're playing as well. Understand the benefits of doing this stuff for their players at the performance level, not just about protecting them for what's going to happen in the future. You know, they will benefit from this stuff if they, they do it right from the very beginning. With half an eye on to, as was alluded to, you're one week away from these guys never playing again rugby again in their lives, you know? And, and, and so I think it's beholden upon them to provide that support structure to them and, and help them with this conversation from a myriad of different reasons whilst they're playing as well as giving them that support, you know, as they're nearing and in retirement. That's spot right on the button, I think, is, to be honest, I said that the end, start and end of your career, but it's throughout, isn't it? Because, like, unfortunately, with rugby, you're one hit away from it all disappearing in an instant, which is what's particularly... It has definitely severe implications about it that other sports don't necessarily have. Speaking of, and this is my final question for both of you, and then we can get on with our days... With rugby specifically, obviously rugby players are traditionally the no weakness 
type of players, you know, and this is very much the archetype. And I hope that rugby is getting past this. And I think it is, but who push down emotions, push down worries, don't necessarily confront their own feelings. Now, without discrediting the retirement stories of other players, but you see a lot of stories of rugby players. Boxing is another one who, when they retired, the fact that they've gone from that conquer all mentality to the void that is retirement, it takes a particular toll that another sport without that same intensity doesn't take to quite ex- at the same extent. Do you guys think that rugby here is particularly vulnerable because of that? And do you think that breaking the taboo on feeling, which someone like Joe Marler has gone away to do over the past six months or so, which is fantastic, is a way of lessening the impact of going from such an adrenaline high sport? I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think, you know, the whole of society is normalising that. Genuinely, people are so much um, happier and more more giving in terms of actually sharing feelings and emotions than they were before, because that's a good thing. And and actually, by doing that, you know, people understand each other better. And and also, if you do need help, you know, it's not just you having a bad day, then then you can get it. So I, I think you know the whole of society, you know, the next generation, our our children's generation. I don't know about Yasmin and Tula, Tony, but Jake, Tom, and Ollie are, are, are much generally much better at that yeah. um, and sharing it with their friends. And I, I think that's a good thing. So and and you are seeing that more more in rugby. And you know, for me, that is a strength, and it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to to be able to be open about you know an issue or or, or how you're feeling. I agree with all that. Um, it needs to be embraced. And I think it is being embraced. I think you're absolutely right, Dij. It's it surprised me. I was talking to some young Marines, um, young officers just a week or so ago. And the fact that it's in their vocabulary and the lexicon, they're very happy just to talk and to, 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 to embrace the words vulnerability and humility and all this sort of stuff. And, and the likes of, uh, you know, when you sort of see it in an environment like that, they're embracing it. You can understand the power of it. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say because physicality was never a thing in my sport. So, of course, I can embrace vulnerability to a certain extent. But the likes of Joe Marler, et cetera, you know, for him to be talking about it is, is a very different thing. Uh, and I, I agree with you. It was talked about, but it really was amongst your mates. And there were times when I felt I got let down a, a little bit when I sort of opened myself up and didn't get some support by by others. So it, it meant that you did end up in this situation. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel that they have to just sort of sweep it in the car to get on with it and just crack on and all those sort of phrases. When the reality is it's just going to do you long-term damage and has, unfortunately, for some people. Um, I think, again, it just comes back to the question you were talking about, the, the point we were talking about earlier with mental health and being vulnerable and exposing yourself to these conversations to get talking about this stuff is crucial for mental health. And it's it's crucial for, again, I just link this stuff with resilience, for example, and having the resilience to deal with this stuff. I link it again to performance. You know, you, you talk about the areas where you're not functioning or not working or you can do things better. I don't feel like I'm performing well or you know, exposing your weaknesses. It's all about the conversations need to be had to get better you know, on a, on a mental side of things, but also on a physical, you know, saying, saying you're not quite right. It all results in people just performing better. And I, and I think I think maybe just this length, you know, DG said this word, and I think thankfully it's becoming more and more viewed that vulnerability is a strength. I think turn it around and just say it's actually a necessity. And for mm. performance to happen, we need to be doing that. And, and so if I can make, just tell one brief story, I've got time. I, I liken it to if everyone, anyone ever saw the Living with the Lions video from 97 and we talked about the Lions laws we did at the very beginning of that tour. We never used the word vulnerability. But in essence, what we discussed about in that in those meetings before we left to go to South Africa was where were we going to be vulnerable? What might go wrong on this trip instead of dealing with it then? We'll discuss now how we're going to deal with it now. We got talking. You see what I mean? They never used the word vulnerability, but that's what we were going to be confronting, whether it was selection policies and how we were going to deal with whether you get picked for the test, etc. So it's crucial. It's crucial to talk. And the power of performance, if you do get talking, I think is, is a very important thing to add to this. And, and if you look at if you look at the history, the development of professional rugby, you know, when, when you suddenly had access to athletes all, all of the time, yeah, the physical aspect was the first thing that really you know, started kicking through in terms of, you know, progression. Then nutrition really kicked in, you know, in the late 90s. And those two kind of went hand in hand, really. And, and then the whole skill development, skill acquisition bit um, and, you know, and alongside the kind of normal stuff around technical you know, lineouts and everything. The bit that's still behind the curve is the psychology bit, you know, and, 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 and the whole mental preparation and mental 
toughness and and resilience that comes with it and and being able to process the negative side of things as well as the positive that bit's still behind the curve and and I think you'll see more and more at club level come into that England are now using it and I've got a very good operator you know in there on the on the psychology side and and it we kind of we played around with it kind of you know a little bit with with England got a little bit involved with it but I I think that's that that's the that's the un you know untapped potential area of, of probably biggest growth in in the sport is getting players in the right mindset yeah. Deej may I add it's something you must face when you're headhunting people as well outside of the world of sport you know most of the most of the training most of the preparation is all about technical skills and it, and it, the approach things are not enough about the behavioral side of things and I think yeah you know and the difference with sport is because we're in such a microcosm as you say Ollie with all the sort of social media that goes behind exposing the highs and making them be even bigger and and the danger of the big the the danger of these big highs everyone fo- you know focuses on the failures and when things go wrong but dealing with highs is such a massive thing as well but the reality is it's it's in all walks of life and i think we're all guilty of this aspect of not enough time being spent on the behavioral side of things my view is that a combination of private and public support is absolutely ideal i think like you guys say the private support systems are very strong in rugby uh, the public support in terms of that public discussion joe Mara is the case study we've given is in development but i think it's absolutely taking steps in the right direction we are going to leave it there thanks so much guys <laughs> sorry but i thoroughly enjoyed it thanks no no no, no 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 <laughs> yeah i'm i'm glad you guys enjoyed it it was great to meet you both cheers, cheers, cheers to you. guys As always, if you want a copy of The Rugby Paper, you can pick it up in stores on Sundays or through our digital subscription, have it delivered straight to you. Next week, we welcome RFU referee Craig Maxwell-Keith to discuss the ever-changing issue that is Laws of the Game.